Hello, and welcome back to season two of Drinks and Thinks, the podcast where I, Connor Stewart, have a couple of drinks with some of my mates and talk about different philosophical issues. I thought we'd kick this one off with one of my very close friends, somebody who I've had a lot of uh, drinking experience with, uh, and that is Will Bladen. Will, please tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Hi, hi, Conan. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so today we're talking about ethical consumerism, and I have been a vegan in the past, and I'm trying to keep to that as much as I can. I live abroad, so it's a bit difficult, but uh, I tend to stick to mostly sort of vegetarian-ish diets and things, and sort of you know keeping along those lines of ethical consumerism with everything I can, and try and do that. Nice, nice. Tell us a little bit about what it's like where you live. Because that's, you know, quite an odd, an odd, quirky thing about you, I think. Uh, well, I currently live in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful city. Uh, it's a bit different to what you see on the telly, you know. Um, quite a big city, lots of tall buildings and things. And uh, in terms of diet, it's a, I think you'd, you'd find if you were a vegan here, it's quite difficult. Um, you haven't got the options that you probably would get in a local Sainsbury's or Tesco where you've got all the sort of substitutes that you would get otherwise but in terms of you know keeping in line with that vegetables and things like that so easily accessible here and I think there's a big sort of push towards fresh and local consumerism here which is absolutely brilliant to see. Yeah yeah I actually think that's that's quite an interesting point that you bring up that it's sort of all all fresh and local because I feel like in um, in more sort of northern European countries at least a lot of produce used to be at least very very much imported and now we're sort of seeing a bit of a shift to favoring local things in a sort of um you know neo hipster kind of kind of movement and you're saying that in Nairobi at least it's it's sort of like that naturally I think yeah because of the um I hazard to say it but I think the infrastructure in place isn't sort of suited to the import export lifestyle where you can just import and export as freely as you as you want you know, there are implications to do with, you know, the economy and things like that. And also to do with the geography of the country. Um, so I think, you know, and also in Kenya, it's very fertile land. So it's quite easy to grow uh, fruit and veg here and easily supply it to much of the nation. Right, right. That's really, that's really great. I mean, um, just to put this into context for some, some future listeners, potentially, no clue how this is going to, how long this is going to be around, but um, obviously, we're currently slap bang in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Um, you know, Corona has swept the nation. I'm pretty sure I spoke about it quite a lot in the last series. Um, what's it been like living in Kenya with that whole situation? What do you know? Can you compare it to the situation in the UK and, and, and what's it like? Um, well, I mean, obviously, it's very different. Uh, everyone's had to alter how they live. Um, so there is a, a nationwide curfew um, in place. I think by 11 p.m. you have to be indoors, at least in home. Or if you if you have um, you can get exemptions of of course if you have to work through the night and things like that. Uh, just odd things like scanning your temperature before you walk into a shop. Every shop, pretty much in in uh, in Nairobi, at least. Um, and you know, just face masks are, are mandatory outside and things like that. So I think it is very you know comparable but uh, i think here it's a, it's a it's a little bit more scary because it's a bit more in your face i think right right i mean um you, you say it's it's sort of you know more more scary do you think it's any more strict at least the government restrictions have been any more strict where you are uh well i mean th there were some sort of um issues at the beginning of the lockdown to do with bit of police brutality and things like that to do with the curfew you know people out and about you know trying to swing by go to a bar or something that was illegally open and you know some issues some run-in from with uh, citizens and police and I think you know that was one of the probably the biggest issue that came out of the back of it but um everything else seems to be sort of running smoothly now of course cases are still rising but um I think that's the case pretty much everywhere you just have to get the lid on top of it and keep it you know keep it contained yeah yeah of course i find it I, I just find it hilarious that no matter where you go in the world one of the main reasons people are are sort of sneaking out or breaking rules 
is is booze. Ultimately, <laughs> I think I made a good choice uh, on on podcast topic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, you're in Edinburgh. I mean, I haven't heard about what it's like there. What's it like there? It's actually um, it's pretty chilled out. I mean, we're in a a tiered system in Scotland instead of the uh, you know the full lockdown that that England's currently facing. Uh, but even when England was in a tier lockdown, it was, you know, three stages, whereas here it's five. Um, and, you know, different areas can be moved up or down depending on various factors like infection rate, etc. Um, so it hasn't been, you know, insanely strict. I think Sturgeon has been pretty on it with um, with making sure that booze wasn't sold, actually, which I find really interesting. She's, you know, restaurants are allowed open. Cafes are allowed to open up until a certain period and stuff provided they don't sell any alcohol, um, which I think, or at least Sturgeon seems to think that is a, is a large factor in the transmission of coronavirus because people don't really act as, you know, as intelligently when they are boozed up. No, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, there's a, a bar just around, around the corner from here and you can always hear it, you know, people absolutely piled with people. And I think that's, Definitely the case that booze is a big sort of factor for people breaking lockdown. But uh, yeah, right. I'm sure I'm sure everyone can relate um, <laughs> to that, that issue. Um, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about your sort of personal reasons for being a vegan and for choosing, you know, a, a lower meat diet, at least. Yeah, sure. Um, well, interestingly, at first, uh, it, it, it was sort of an environmental choice. Um, I was... I followed the right people on Twitter for this, but uh, I was plagued with sort of posts about how the meat industry and 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 and, and in particular the meat industry and, and every other meat um, sort of chicken and fish industry sort of has ways to produce their goods that are really, really, really detrimental to the environment. And it was only sort of afterwards that it occurred to me that I also very much cared about animal rights, which I think is weird because I think it's probably the reverse for most people, but at first, it was very, mu- uh, very much an environmental choice on my part. Right, right. I mean, you know, you raised some some very valid arguments there about, you know, uh, environmental impact. You know, there's um, huge amounts of water consumption going to producing meat. I think it was, uh, I can't remember. I think it was probably from Cowspiracy or something where they said something ridiculous like over 800 gallons of water is required to make one beef burger which is just insane. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, <clears throat> the numbers are ridiculous, but I think what, one thing that people don't realise as much with sort of, not so much the high-end meats, but the sort of packeted and, and frozen meats is that a lot of it comes from South America where huge amounts of the Amazon rainforest did just absolutely, you know, disappear in, in, in a day, in a week to have these uh, sort of cattle ranches. And it, I mean, it's not only bad in terms of the environment locally, but across the globe, because I mean, it, Amazon is the lung of, lungs of the planet and we're sort of trading that for a beef burger, which I thought was a bit unethical. Right, yeah, exactly. And um, it kind of comes back to that issue of, of buying locally that we sort of briefly touched upon earlier. You know, if everybody were buying meat that was sourced from you know maybe 200 miles radius around maybe that's not realistic but um if everyone was buying meat from a certain area local to them as opposed to shipping it in from south america from land that was being reclaimed from the amazon or claimed from the amazon i guess um then it seems that we could avoid that almost you know there's there's areas of land in england in america in in huge swaths of of northern europe that are fertile for um for grazing cattle etc etc so there's no reason we shouldn't be able to source our demands meet our demands from from locally sourced places yeah absolutely and i, I think um it also it's 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 about the responsibility of, of people's consuming and and, and understanding that you know, sometimes you're going to have to go with that in some areas. Uh, if you're not by a coastal place, then, you know, maybe buying frozen fish is probably not the best idea. You know, there are plenty of, of options that you can you can source from around you. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's it's almost um, 
a call for people to sort of go back to uh, an earlier kind of um, paleo diet. I mean, that was a term that was used, I think, for like almost an all meat diet or something ridiculous like that. But it's it's sort of a, um, a hearkening back, I guess, to a period where people only could get their hands on what was around them. Uh, and in a way that was much more sustainable than shipping stuff thousands of miles across the globe. Um, but I just want to come back quickly to the sort of uh, animal rights aspect of things that you touched upon. I, I, I think you're entirely right in claiming that it's probably the other way around for most people. They see, you know, a cute little calf and say, oh, I don't want to kill that just for a beef burger. And so they do a bit investigating and find out that, oh no, cattle ranching is devouring the Amazon at an alarming rate. Um, can you talk a little bit about your sort of uh, empathy for animals? And do you think that has a particular effect on your views regarding this? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always grown up with, you know, tons of pets around the house and I couldn't, couldn't bear to see an animal die and, and, and especially not to eat one. But um, I think that largely farms in the UK have got a lot better and, um, and they're sort of their practices are a lot more ethical towards the way that they slaughter the animals, the way they rear them. But you just look at things like battery farms and, and, and the dairy industry where they rip the calves away from their mothers so then they can produce milk. And I, you know, I mean, I think I've seen a lot of it online, which has sort of helped me come to the decision that I wanted to, 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 to go veganism for that reason as well. But um, I think that for me, it's it definitely played a huge part, you know, the animal ethics. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you did talk about just there the sort of standard at least of of um i suppose uh execution at least in in england and it's the same sort of standard in uh, america and, and other places where it's uh, commonly done a lot of the time these cows are dying in a matter of milliseconds which is why uh, i think a lot of of intent carnivores who likely don't want to give up meat because it, it tastes so damn good um, would point to this argument and sort of say well you know it's it's ethical in the fact that they're not suffering most wild animals die of starvation or disease or cold or something else before even they reach the lifespan that a domesticated or a farmed cow might um but equally i think you're you're right to bring up the argument about battery farming and about the milk industry and the dairy industry in particular, that those are sort of quite unethical or at least tear jerking, heartstring plucking uh, scenes that can be seen online and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to sort of go back to what you said, because it's an interesting argument that was, I mean, proposed to me a lot by people at school who are devout meat eaters um about the how animals die of starvation and 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 natural causes in the wild which you know arguably are probably you know cause a bit more suffering than a than a um sort of uh ethical slaughtering but one of the things that doesn't get mentioned a lot is how these animals were bred over centuries and that a lot of them for a lot of them existence is quite painful for them a lot of them are bred to have huge muscles in their in their in their rear legs and things like that, which you know leaves them immobile. Chickens are, are born without feathers, so then they can be easily plucked, and and it's just an uncomfortable life for a lot of them. So, where it's harmful, I mean unethical for these animals to to be slaughtered in some of the ways that they are. I'm not saying that every slaughterhouse is is a you know barbaric and and has. has, has has very you know unethical um, methods, but for a lot of the a lot of the animals on the planet that are reared for meat, its existence is quite you know quite sad for them to be honest. Right, I mean it's it's a pretty um, sort of uncontroversial and uh, hard to dispute claim really that you know as good as slaughtering gets, ultimately these animals are suffering. I mean you touched briefly on, on uh, you know featherless chickens that are born. There's also the whole issue of of animals being pumped with you know obscene amounts of hormones chickens in particular to 
uh, increase the growth of their their breasts beyond uh, beyond normal um, standards, and it, it is you know unhealthy. Ultimately, these bodies are not are not made for that kind of um, that kind of structure. Um, but some people, some meat eaters in particular, might point to another kind of argument, or might um, at least ask of vegans or other sort of non meat eaters why it is that we don't really have a right to eat animals you know we are as they might put it the top of the food chain we are more rational than them we have better sort of uh, intellectual and and moral capacities than animals so why is it that we should be you know uh, forced not to eat them forced to give up our natural advantage over these animals I think you're right in saying that it is a natural advantage. Obviously, we are the, the you know top of the food chain in terms of intelligence, and 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 that's clear in the way that we've been able to farm them and and, and rear them. But I think it doesn't boil down to that. For me, it boils down to the ethical questions of whether this life matters more versus you know the life of a of a dog or a or a cat. I think you know. Some, obviously some cultures it's acceptable to eat those animals and, and, and very many others it's not but uh, I think that meat eaters have a lot, hard time explaining to me why cows are a food and dogs are not and I think that um, you know you, you really need to br bridge this sort of divide between understanding that humans are at the top of the food chain yes but it's a matter of the worth of life not the matter of where we are on that food chain. Okay, I, I I can see where you're coming from there. That makes that makes sense. It appears to me that your uh, your sort of response there basically hinges on, um, you know, an uh, an ultimatum that you've provided the meat eaters, as it were. It's either you can eat everything or you can eat nothing that's living, uh, in the same way that that animals are. Um, I think, like you say, it almost is arbitrary. I'm hesitant to say arbitrary, but it's almost arbitrary where we draw the line about what we can and can't eat. Some people say we can eat horses. Some people don't. Some people say we can eat cats. Some people don't. Some slightly worrying people might say we're allowed to eat people, you know? I think ultimately we can, we can draw a clear divide between the life of an ant, say, or a dust mite, and the life of a human being. I think there's a clear distinction there, and we can clearly see that one life is worth more than the other, just to to sort of link it back in with with that point that you brought up but i don't see any reason why the meat eater couldn't just almost bite the bullet as it were and say sure we can eat cats and dogs it's just a matter of uh, you know cultural uh, significance that some people don't want to uh, absolutely yeah i mean i think it, it absolutely is and i think that a lot of cultures share the same uh, opinion as the one that you've put forward but uh um, I think it, it for me anyway, it, it's, it's, it's not a controversial opinion among the vegan community, obviously, but it is among large portions of the population that it's just it, animals are animals and humans do fall into that category. And I think that we should at least respect the sort of dignity that, that of, of their lives and things. And that doesn't come with not eating them because the food chain is a natural, natural occurrence but it comes with, you know, treating animals with dignity throughout their lives. And I think that's the main thing that, that vegans care about. Right, right. Okay. I see where you're, see where you're coming from there. Um, you know, treating animals with, with care and respect is, is one thing. Does that extend beyond that specific, you know, that very, very specific biological category? Should we be respecting I don't know, plants or fungi in the same way. It seems almost ludicrous to claim that we should, you know, not eat plants because then, you know, what is there to eat? Just mushrooms? We're going to live off mushrooms. I mean, so it, I find it interesting that, that you seem to have drawn this line around the kingdom of animals and saying, and, and said sort of, we can, we shouldn't eat these because we respect them for, for the, the life that they have when there are, arguably certain things classed as animals that have really no more sort of intelligence or um 
well, I guess intelligence is really the only way to put it, but deserve no more respect really than a plant. What do you think about that? I think that's, um, for me at least, that's a, it's a flawed argument if, if, if someone were to put that across to me because I, I, I personally don't find a, a way to empathise with a plant. If, you know, say I was to pluck a leaf off of, off of a tree, there's no whelp of, 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 of sadness that comes off of the tree, maybe a little bit of sap. But um, I think that what people empathise with is the loss of large-scale large amounts of forest and things like that because we have a mutually beneficial relationship with large forests of course they provide us with oxygen and things like that but um i i don't i don't see how how well personally i don't see how a person could empathize with it with a plant or you know like a cabbage patch <laughs> i'm sorry i just can't can't get that image out of my head of someone accidentally crushing a, a leaf or a plant or something and just burst out crying but um yeah i mean I, I completely agree it is it is almost ludicrous to to claim that but i find it interesting that you brought in the sort of mutual benefit there i don't think our our empathy for animals stems from that necessarily i mean there are plenty of animals that we don't benefit from the existence of but still feel empathy for it's almost purely based on our you know similarity to animals that's kind of where empathy and sympathy stem from is the fact that we can sort of relate to these creatures when we can see and recognize suffering for instance in an animal we we want to sort of stop that but you know i mean there are there are animals that that we could never recognize suffering in um sea urchins for instance you know, they're, they're completely alien to humans. We, we can't see the sadness on their face when we eat them. So what's the deal there? That, that's, that's interesting as well, because um, I think that, I mean, there was a study that, that was done a, a while back on, on, on the visibility of suffering that I read about, um, where, of course, if you see a human being who's, you know, getting smacked about you, you feel you know you feel sorry for them and you know, at, at times you want to step in and say you know hang on what are you doing and I think that's the same for if you saw a stray dog on the street and someone was you know kicking it or you know mistreating it but where you don't see visible sort of suffering in, in things like sea urchins that that's a good that's a, that's a good point that you bring up because I, I'm not sure what it was that they compared it to but for the sake of this argument we'll use sea urchins versus starfish and people said, oh, you know, it's really sad when you see people bring starfish out of the ocean. And the person asking said, why? You can't see, you know, them suffering. You can't hear them suffering. And I think it's, it's a matter of when it comes to things like sea urchins, it's just sadly what they look like, you know, because starfish are quite beautiful animals and everyone, you know, thinks that they're, they're, they're very stylish and everything. But uh, sea urchins are probably not so much. <laughs> right right we should you know we can eat animals as long as they're ugly <laughs> um i see i see exactly what you mean there yeah i think ultimately it's kind of a, a, a sad truth and i'm not sure really that um that is one a vegan can get around is that ultimately the the or at least for the empathy argument is that really we only feel empathy on, a, on an arbitrary basis that being sort of similarity to ourselves or a certain appearance as you as you touched on there so it's kind of hard really to justify empathy as a as a real grounds for a sort of ethical obligation not to to harm or eat an animal i think you know capacity for suffering is of course much more visible in in animals that are like us and capacity for suffering probably should be a criteria for whether or not we can harm certain things you know, it's kind of okay to chop down a tree because it doesn't feel it. When you start chopping down thousands and thousands, like you say, there's other reasonings that come in there. Um, but it's kind of okay to step on a patch of grass. It's not going to feel it. It's not really okay to step on a, a child, for instance. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, I, I don't think vegans have to tell you that. <laughs> I don't know about you. I kind of have this weird thing in my head where I sort of 
associate veganism or vegetarianism with the color green. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. <laughs> no, it's kind of got that like plant vibe to it. Plant based, you know, what do you think about when you see plants? You think trees and green leaves and that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, also, you know, the word green can be used to mean like, you know, environmentally friendly, all of that kind of stuff. Um, the point I'm trying to get to is that I feel like these uh, these drinks justifications are getting more and more contrived. Um, <laughs> I was going to use the green thing kind of as a justification for what we're drinking today. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> I've got currently in front of me a, a, a nice glass of mojito, which is, uh, you know, got mint in it which is a nice green plant (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um i mean yeah exactly so i thought i'd uh switch things up a bit since seeing as how it's a a new season i guess are we doing these in seasons i guess so um seeing as how it's a new season i thought i'd switch up the drinks break a little bit uh, and take more of a um a bartendy kind of twist to it and explain exactly what the drinks are we're having, uh, what they're like, how to make them, and all of this kind of stuff. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but my mojito is, quite frankly, a poor excuse for one. I mean, I think mine too, mainly because, as we discussed before we got onto the podcast, I don't actually have any mint in the house. So right now it's a pretty poor excuse for a mojito, but it, 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 it you know, it's got it's got the alcohol in it, so I suppose it's good enough. I mean, booze is booze, but um, for those interested, a sort of classic mojito involves um, lime juice, white rum, uh, mint, uh, a little bit of sugar usually, all sort of muddled together. Uh, at least the, the uh, dry ingredients, the lime juice or the lime, the sugar, the mint all muddled together in the bottom of a glass with white rum and then sparkling water added and plenty of usually crushed ice. Um, it's a very nice, cool, refreshing drink. You know, the mint is really amazing when you can get your hands on it. Um, <laughs> for me today, I uh, I also didn't have any mint because I somehow lack the foresight to remember that mojitos need mint. So I thought I'd improvise a little bit. Um, And I've added some uh, elderflower cordial. Nice. That, yeah, that's a, I suppose a decent substitute for what you got living as a student. So I wouldn't be too upset with what you've got in front of you, but I haven't got any substitute. So, and I'm living at home. So I'm quite, I'm quite upset with what I've got. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a bit tough, I'm not going to lie. But, uh, I mean, it's not really a mojito, what I've got, but it's quite nice. It's quite nice. The elderflowers, you know, it's light, it's crisp. Kind of stands in for the mint, not really. It doesn't taste like mint, obviously, but it it um it kind of, I guess, echoes the same sort of vibe. I'm going to call it an elderflower mojito. Why not? Why not? There's strawberry mojitos out there. You put your own spin on it. And I, I think I, I, I made the mistake of... Um not user, using any um, measurements. So I sort of just went, yeah, that'll probably be enough. And now I've got quite a strong drink in front of me. So apologies if my voice gets a bit slurred towards the end of the podcast. But uh... <laughs> Honestly, don't worry. I think that's kind of kind of the point. Almost every episode I find myself commenting on how people stumble over their words at the end of a podcast. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, I also didn't use any measurements and uh, I like tasted it and I was like, this just, this just tastes like sparkling water. What have I done? So I just started pouring more and more in until it sort of vaguely tasted like mojito. It's close enough. It'll do. Yeah, I wouldn't give up university for bartending on either of our sides, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I should attend bartending school and just pick up a few extra tricks. <laughs> so we talked in the last segment, Will, a little bit about sort of the reasons for choosing certain kinds of, of diet over others based on, you know, various uh, ethical ethical bases. And we, we started with uh, environmental factors, though we only really spoke about that a little bit. We focused a bit more on, on um, 
sort of the the animal rights and empathy kind of side of things. Um, do you think that that same sort of basis, the, um, I guess, rights of other beings and the empathy for other living things, do you think that confers any kind of similar uh, changes in lifestyle to other areas of, of human existence? Do you think we should be uh, vegans in all aspects of our life or should, do you think we should be acting in certain ways in order to be ethical in things like you know, I don't know clothing? Um, certainly with clothing, <clears throat> you, you need to, I think, for the most part, uh, not in terms of veganism, where you just avoid leather and wool and, and all the sort of animal furs that go into things, but you really need to sort of do your research on where you're buying clothes from. Because let's not forget that pretty much everything that you can buy now has become, you know, a, a global commodity. And in that, you have forces that want to profit from these things. And they'll do that by cutting costs where they can and where they, you know, feel that they perhaps, you know, have the right to cut these co uh, costs. Um, and with clothing, I think that's certainly the case where you see people working in sweatshops, for example, and, and, and other sort of very, very miserable uh, work um, uh, environments, that's the word. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean... I think uh, I may have sort of slightly rigged that with that particular example, but yeah, there's definitely huge amounts of, of ethical consideration. I think that most people put into their clothing nowadays, at least, I think there's been a huge sort of resurgence in it recently where people have been saying, you know, calling out certain brands uh, and saying, you guys are using sweatshops in third world countries where people are, you know, dying of heat stroke or getting trapped in fires in the factories and having just absolutely horrific working conditions that violate probably a number of, of human rights. Um, I mean, obviously that sort of conveys some kind of feeling in the general populace at the moment that we should be taking these sort of ethical considerations in areas of our life beyond just, just eating and beyond just clothing. Do you think that that applies to any broader sort of, fields i guess uh broader fields um you mean past clothing and food yeah yeah just across sort of you know we do a number of things in in our in our life we have to make a number of choices about you know where we live and, and what we buy besides just food and clothes and, and things like that do you think that that kind of thing should should be taken with ethical consideration uh, absolutely. I think um, it's not just um, in, I mean, you said third world countries, but it's not just in the third world countries. We have to remember uh, in countries like the UK and the US, Amazon has become, and specific, and particularly in in the COVID era, if, we, if we're going to call it that, has become, you know, has, has grown exponentially because people are wanting to stay inside and order things online so then they can protect themselves from the virus, which is absolutely you know the most sensible thing to do but we have to remember that these huge corporations even in first world countries are still not treating their employees with the respect that they deserve and 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 i think that that comes under the umbrella term of ethical consumption that we need to sort of regard these workers with the respect that they they deserve right right yeah that sounds i mean that sounds very very fair to me i think you're right uh, in pointing out um, that it's not just third world countries it is all over the place I mean just recently there was a factory exposed in the UK that was practically a sweatshop um, do you think that that just you know not just about um, the certain companies and what they do uh, should be taken into into consideration you know obviously people think about oh I'm buying from company XYZ they do this therefore I should stop buying from them do you think we should take more consideration than that even? I think there's definitely people who would claim this, you know, in a situation, for instance, where uh, in particular in London, there are huge, huge amounts of housing, of uh, flats and apartments that are, you know, quite high end, that have completely been bought up by uh, foreign oligarchs and, 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 and particularly wealthy people uh, meaning that these these places of, of 
of living just stay empty for the majority of the year in a place like London where uh, housing is becoming a real issue and where there are numerous, countless probably, homeless individuals. Um, do you think that in that kind of situation we should be taking into consideration what houses we're buying, where we're moving to live? Does, is that something that we as, as consumers ultimately in a capital in a capitalist market should be taking into account every time we buy anything? I think with housing, it's, it's particularly difficult. Um, for example, with gentrification projects, they always promise that, you know, the housing that they're going to build is going to be affordable for the people, even, even the people that live in that area, you know, perhaps people who are living on benefits or people who are just getting by on, on, on minimum wage. The, the term affordable is always made by the people who earn six figure salaries a year and who have no concept of what affordable actually is. And they sort of ration these houses just above where the people can afford them, uh, the, the, you know, the incumbent um, residents of the area and just, just sort of at the affordable range for, you know, new homeowners. And I think that, it's very difficult for new homeowners who have to think about ethical reasons for moving into areas because at the end of the day, the, the housing market is such that if you're becoming a first time buyer, you, you sort of get what you, you can and, and, and you have to sort of get by with your first house. But I think certainly you have to look at gentrification projects and how they really displace communities. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that all seems, seems very fair to me. I mean, just to, to sort of pick up on, on the fact that you spoke about, um, in particular, how new homeowners often don't have the, the uh, financial capacity to be making those kinds of choices. Um, they don't have the, the privilege, really, to choose where they, can, where they can move and live. Do you think the same sort of concept can be applied back to other issues like clothing, like food, where we encounter people who quite frankly, don't have the income to be making those kinds of choices, to be substituting their diets for other kinds of, you know, more ethical diets. And really, they just need to get enough food to get by. What what can we do in those situations? What does this mean? Oh, I think, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a brilliant point, because in particular with the clothing industry, you have for uh, companies like uh, Primark, for example, who put out very sort of... I, I, Quite low quality clothes, I think is fair to say. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if you agree with that, but low quality clothes, but at an extremely affordable rate. And I think that people who generally people who buy them uh, either people looking for a bargain because, you know, it's always fun to find something that you like at a low price or people who just really, really can't afford to go, you know, a couple doors down on the high street and go into places like H&M or places like Urban Outfitters and Topman and things like that. So I think that certainly pricing is definitely a, a massive variable. And, and that's the same with foods as well. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I think, I think you've illustrated that sort of point perfectly there. I think that we kind of, we're almost tempted then to make, uh, you know, exceptions. I think uh, a lot of the time, most people, at least in, in my experience, correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, but most people who I've encountered who are um, vegans or vegetarians or pescatarians or whatever, they're not people from the sort of lower end of the socioeconomic standing. They're not people who are struggling to make ends meet. Ultimately, they're people who have enough and can afford to make a switch in favour of, of ethical uh, sort of benefit for the world. I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think I agree with that completely. Uh, at least from 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 what I've seen, I haven't I haven't come across any vegan or vegetarian who 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 seems to be just getting by. But um, I think that the the root issue of that is that we're producing far more of the of the cheap meats than we are of the fresh local vegetables, and I think that that's something that really needs to change if we want to see a, a sway in demographic of people who are um, you know choosing to become vegans or vegetarian. Pescatarian, who are just you know, slowly cutting meats out of their diet. Right, right. I mean, you kind of seem to be pointing out almost an, uh, an issue 
with the uh, the economic system as a whole there. Um, but I'm, I'm sure we'll have a chance to circle back to that later. I just kind of wanted to um, to pick up on and continue that point about uh, us sort of making exceptions for people who are uh, struggling to make this this different lifestyle work, be it uh, a vegan lifestyle or be it a lifestyle where we don't buy all of these cheaper clothing brands. Um, from an ethical sort of point of view, we want to say almost, or at least I'm sure a vegan or a, a somebody who's so ethically inclined may want to say that you have an almost an obligation to make this switch to save these lives. You know, if there is ethical good to be had by eating less meat, surely everyone has an obligation to eat less meat. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting one because I think with, with the meat industry, I think it's, it's, it, I mean, cows themselves produce a lot of greenhouse gases and it's, it's, it's perhaps it's a good thing that um, some of them are being reared and then, and then slaughtered. But I think that the obligation is certainly there in terms of people's ethics uh, the, towards the animal. Uh, uh, people argue uh, either way, you know, that uh, it's just a life. It doesn't matter. Or, you know, we're at the top of the food chain, as we mentioned before, but certainly the, the, um, the ethical obligation in, ter in terms of the, in the environment, particularly today, um, I think is, is, is more, more powerful than that of the animal's life, uh, which I, I think is quite sad to say. I think that's a, I think that's pretty indicative of, of the sort of position that we've been put in, in terms of the environment. Right. Yeah. I, th I think you're, you're definitely right in, in, in saying all of that about the environment. I think it's interesting though, that a lot of the time, or at least to me, it could be seen from a more cynical point of view that the only reason really that anyone has any obligation to care about the environment is really just because it's going to affect them. You know, polar ice caps melting, temperatures rising, sea levels rising. It's going to cause huge amounts of, of damage to coastlines around the world. It's going to cause huge issues in, in numerous areas of human life. So of course this issue applies to everyone. So isn't that why we should be concerned or is it because of some sort of deeper ethical issue? Even people who are going to die maybe before the cataclysm of, of environmental disaster hits. Do you think they still have an, an obligation to, to act ethically? As, as the people sort of the generations ahead of us have the obligation or do you mean the people now? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean sort of older generations who aren't going to be around to see the world, um, you know, struggle with environmental issues as such? Well, I think that what we can learn from our past is the mistakes in, I mean, the Industrial Revolution was great for us, obviously. You know, it gave us all the machinery to build our economies faster and everything. But I think we've learned a lot of sort of valuable lessons about the way we pollute the earth. Um, and I think that if we are able to shift and, and I, I say shift, I don't, because uh, I hazard to, I don't want to use the word reverse because I think it's, it's practically impossible to reverse what we've done now. But um, if we're able to shift the world into a better sort of um, environmental standpoint, I think that certainly it is an obligation of the future generations to, to, to follow in the footsteps that we, we sort of, you know, paved out for them. Obviously, in terms of meat, I don't think that we're ever going to see a world where, 51% uh, even of the world is vegan or vegetarian. I think that's just, a, I think that's a long shot, but I think if people are more ethical in their sourcing, even that has a huge impact on, on the way that the environment is, is, is helped. Right. Yeah. I think, I think you're, you know, it is difficult to make a claim that anyone, that any such a large amount of people is going to be uh, vegan at any point. I think you're, you're right in claiming that people won't, or 51% of people won't probably be vegan. But, you know, there are, like you say, alternatives we can shift to. There's potentially um, artificial meat. If anyone's interested in, in researching that, it's really interesting stuff. People are talking about lab-growing meat from various sources. 
it's not really looking much environmentally better. It, it still requires a huge amount of energy, huge amount of time and effort to create this kind of stuff. At the end of the day, it's cutting the animal out, but it's still keeping a lot of the, uh, the side effects, environmentally at least, that we, that we talk about. Um, but like you say, there are ways of ethically sourcing meat on a lower level. If it means everybody having one less meal a week with meat, or maybe two or three, it, it, you know, it doesn't really matter. But we don't have to cut meat out of our diet, I think, I think you're right in saying. Um, although at this point in time, a single person cutting meat out of their diet is probably pretty good because uh, it probably has a greater effect than, than one person doing less than that. You know, of course it does. Um, just to circle back round to the whole capitalism thing, everybody ultimately in our capitalist economy has a certain amount of purchasing power. I'm tempted to say that with that purchasing power comes purchasing responsibility as Stanley or Spider-Man might want to say, um, you know, we, we kind of have an, an obligation to use that, that money uh, in the right way. You know, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. We don't want to see people spending money on funding genocide or anything else that seems to be immoral. That seems to be pretty standard, but also it seems to me that there's a, a movement currently at least, uh, which I've seen with people sort of um, encouraging, supporting particularly black-owned businesses uh, surrounding the whole um, sort of police brutality in America and uh, almost a sort of second sort of civil rights kind of thing, uh, or at least civil equality movement for racial injustice. I think that, you know, we see this huge tendency for people to want to claim that our purchasing power comes with this ethical obligation to use it in the right way what are your thoughts on that i think that that's entirely true i mean we we, we have a huge responsibility particularly the people that have the um <clears throat> um choice or sort of yeah have the choice to be able to to say okay i'm going to shop here this week or i'm going to shop there and i think one thing that a lot of people forget with with the term ethical consumerism is that it doesn't just apply to sweatshops or, or to people uh, or to, to animals or the environment. It also applies to something that you mentioned there, which is, you know, small black owned businesses or small uh, businesses in your area with these large, you know, shopping centers and, and supermarkets that come that sweep through uh, first world countries. These smaller businesses are really finding it hard to, to, to draw customers in and you know, at the end of the day, I think it, it, it's a it's a brilliant move of, of a person, you know, even if you don't want to cut meat out of your diet, if you don't want to stop shopping at, you know, uh, Primark, but just to support local businesses, I think is one huge way that you can, you know, be a, a, an ethically minded consumer. Right. Okay. So just sort of focusing in on, uh, let's say, the issue of um, sort of diversity and racial equality in particular, surely there are one might claim other ways we can fight that kind of injustice, other ways we can contribute ethically to the ending of, of racial injustice, say by uh, encouraging diversity in the workplace. Why, why do we need to uh, sort of take this approach that we, we can't support huge um, corporations and conglomerates? If Amazon were black owned, say Jeff Bezos was from somewhere uh, in America that was, you know, particularly predominantly black and he happened to be a black man. Would that be, you know, just as ethical to support Amazon? Or is there some sort of, some sort of issue tied up here more with the actual difference between small businesses versus big businesses, as opposed to white versus black businesses? Oh, that absolutely has nothing to do with race in this case. Um, you know, if Jeff Bezos was replaced by a, a, a black man, I don't think that I'd be, you know, shouting his praises from the rooftops because clearly there are still a lot of things that need to be fixed with Amazon. What the, the big issue is, is that um, uh, socially, so socioeconomic standing show that racially, <clears throat> uh, racial minorities have communities that suffer the most in terms of 
uh, access to education. Yeah, this is particularly in the UK. I'm not too sure about the statistics elsewhere, but access to the education, and then obviously with education comes a huge amount of possibilities. Um, and with black-owned businesses and and you know racially minority-owned businesses in the UK, they are definitely struggling because of conglomerates and because of these uh, large hypermarkets that you see you know, popping up across across the UK. But uh, it definitely has nothing to do with race. If it was, if there was a small business owned by a white white man or woman, then definitely that that should be something that you should pay attention to. At, at the same, you know, with the same um, intrigue as if it was a a business owned by a racial minority. Right, right, cool. I'm I'm glad to I'm glad to hear those uh, those views. Do you think then that that anyone with um, just to sort of round things off, do you think anyone with with enough purchasing power to be choosing where they buy has an, an obligation to do this kind of thing, to be ethically minded with their money? Ah, well, you see money talks and if one person did it, probably it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't cause that much of a, you know, it would be a drop in an ocean. But um, if enough people who had, you know, the means to, to be able to select where they shopped, you know, did so responsibly, then absolutely they have an obligation to do that because, it, it helps people in, in more ways than you think to, to shop locally, to support local production and things like that. Because at the end of the day, <clears throat> 10 people who don't go into a, into a Sainsbury's and then instead go to a corner shop or a local butchery, for example, is going to mean so much to the people who own the butchery or the corner shop. But it's not really going to matter too much to the Sainsbury's, is it? Right, right. I, I agree entirely there. I think you're, you're perfectly right that that anyone within their within their capabilities of doing so should really uh, think about that kind of thing. Uh, I just want to say thank you for helping me to kick off what will hopefully be uh, season two of my podcast. Oh, absolutely! Thank you so much for inviting me on for the first episode. I'm very I'm very honoured. Hopefully, it carries on and is very successful down the line. Yeah, yeah fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well. Um, Either way, it's been, been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to this podcast, this episode. Um, stay drinking, stay thinking. Let me know if you make any mojitos, in particular elderflower mojitos. I'll be honest, they, it, wasn't, it wasn't as nice as a real one. Just make a real mojito if you've got mint. Um, but thank you for tuning in anyway, and we'll see you next time. Bye.